Our guest on this episode of the London Futurist podcast is someone with excellent connections to the foresight departments of governments around the world. He is Jerome Glenn, founder and executive director of the Millennium Project. The Millennium Project is a global participatory think tank established in 1996, which now has over 70 nodes around the world. It has the stated purpose to improve humanity's prospects for building a better world. The organization produces regular State of the Future reports, as well as updates on what it describes as the 15 Global Challenges. It recently released an acclaimed report on three scenarios for the future of work. One of its new projects will be our main topic today, namely scenarios for the global governance of the transition from artificial narrow intelligence to artificial general intelligence. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Great to have you here, Jerome. Thank you. For our listeners who may not know that much about you, can you briefly tell us some highlights about yourself? I have worked for upwing, downwing, leftwing, rightwing think tanks in the 70s and 80s, and then finally said, enough of this stuff. Let's do a general think tank on the general future, and we'll have rightwing people, leftwing people, upwing people, and downwing people in it as a global participatory system, and that became the Millennium Project which has been in business now for over 25, almost 30 years. I am both an optimist in the sense that it's worthwhile doing and a little bit of a pessimist because I do tend to look at some of the worst things humans can do to each other or create. But the idea is to be a practical idealist. You're not running away from things. And this subject today, I think, is one of the most important problems to address from my 50 years of experience. You mentioned some ways in which the Millennium Project differed from other think tanks. Are there other characteristics that distinguish it in terms of its process, the way it works things out, the way it reaches its reports? Yeah, it's a decentralized system with these 70-plus nodes around the world. Node is a group of individuals or institutions or both that uh, identify the leading thinkers as much as they can get them to answer questionnaires in a Delphi process that pulls their ideas together and allows people to respond to those different ideas and feedback, and that we do this on an ongoing basis for all these years, especially on the 15 global challenges. So one thing that's unique is that it tries to do a cumulative research, like the 15 global challenges written now should be more insightful than before. And before that, going all the way back, it's a way to see, are we doing a cumulative, are we improving futures thinking on these global challenges? That's one that's unique. The other is unique is that we have one node in Israel and one in Tehran. And they're treated equally because the commitment is to humans, not to an ideology or to a government or to a particular issue. How's the whole game going as as a whole? So that's unique because there are systems like the CIA and other ones like that that do global intelligence, but they're doing it on behalf of their country, and they're mostly looking at the zero-sum power game rather than the whole game in general. Jerome, before we come up to date and talk about what you're working on at the moment, I wanted to reach back into your distinguished past and talk about one particular person who's always fascinated me that you worked with in the early days, something which I think was called the Futures Options Room. Oh, yeah. 
who is Alvin Toffler, yeah. whose book, The Third Wave, completely blew my mind when I read it as a young man. He and Kurtzweil are probably, I think, the two most influential futurists on me, at least. What was he like to work with? Well, first of all, you've got to filter this. Most futurists, including me, are jealous because his stuff sells like crazy. Future Shock was one of the biggest hits on the planet on futures thinking that's ever been done. Now, he took a lot of liberty with adjectives and adverbs, but in all fairness, in Future Shock, in the beginning, he put down, look, I'm going to say a lot of stuff. Yes, there's always the if-then and its qualifications and so forth, but it's boring reading it that way. So he just went on and had a lot of fun writing. Most of his stuff he got from other futurists, by the way. So that's the other part of the jealousy. But he's a great, he was a great writer, very nice to work with, and we all owe him a debt. Because for many times when someone said, what do you do? I said, well, look at the future. Well, what the, look at the future. What does that mean? So you know the book Future Shock? Oh, yeah, that's what you're talking about. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. So he made our lives easier. So our jealousy is real, but it's muffled because he's done all of us a favor. I suppose before him, there were people who wrote and thought about the future, obviously, and lots of science fiction writers. H.G. Wells yep. was an extremely good futurist in that sense. But I guess perhaps Toffler was at least one of the first to consider himself as a professional futurist. And I do think that in that book, The Third Wave, he hit upon something really important, which people still don't get, which is that we are in this new revolution. We've gone beyond the Industrial Revolution. Now we're in the Information Revolution. Unfortunately, the idea of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, I always think, has set us back a little bit. But lots of the things that he wrote about in that book are now unfolding. He got a lot right, it seems to me. Oh, yeah. There is a book that your listeners might want to check out. I think it's called Future Shock Revisited. It was a 50 years. I wrote one of the chapters in there. One of the things that I put in that chapter was that he got the major thesis wrong. No offense, Al. We didn't get shocked. We got habituated. And this is one of the reasons we're having this talk today, David. Well, it's next version. Well, it's next version. Well, it's next. You would just sit there and nod our heads up and down. And up comes a prompt on our system that says, you got to upgrade. And if you don't upgrade, you can't use a system. We've just habituated. That having said, the subject of today on artificial intelligence is a very good sign because when we first started pushing what's called packet switching, it's the reason the internet is cheap. It's a little device that compresses stuff and switches to satellite. Anyway, when we were doing this in the 70s and 80s, we thought this is going to be great. We're going to hook up the world. Everything's going to be great. It was like magic wands going around the world connecting up people. It was just lovely. We didn't think about narrow reinforcement and putting people into the stovepipe thinking and, and pornography and a lot of others. We just didn't think that much about it. But today, the amount of technological assessment is gigantic. I think humanity has matured because we did not have that during the early days of the Internet. We just really didn't. But now there's so many things going on, I can't keep track. And I'm trying to keep track of everything. I can't do it. There's just so many conferences, so many papers, so many good ideas, so many changes in software. But we are assessing it much better than we had in the past. But isn't it the case that we may be now accustomed to talking about AI and the marvelous things it can do and the things it can get wrong, but we're not collectively paying enough attention to the AI of tomorrow. In other words, when AI changes its nature, yeah. 
and there is some Hollywood films and there are some science fiction, but in terms of real options for governing our way through to a comfortable use of artificial general intelligence, we're not paying enough attention to that. Yeah, the depth is not there. That's correct. There's an awful lot of discussion about it, but the depth is not there. Like, for example, there's some folks, I won't name names of the universities and think tanks, who have said, wow, you've actually talked about some global models. Like, is it going to be this kind of system or that kind of system? They're shocked. I'm going, my goodness, you guys have been thinking about this for a long time, and you haven't gotten down to the details of, like, how you'd actually manage it for real? So, yeah, it needs a step further into detail to get more serious. That's why we want to do the study. And what will happen if there is no governance, if it's left to companies to make their own decisions, if it's left to each country to make their own decisions? What's likely to happen? Because by default, that's going to be the case. Well, a lot of things would have happened that would have no understanding why. Like, for example, in my country, the Mississippi River is controlled by artificial intelligence. What dams or what things along the way breaks will control the flooding. And uh, so if somebody decides they want to get in there and mess around with uh, Mississippi versus St. Louis or whatever, or other parts of it, they could do this. We've got the Internet of Things coming up, which is entry points all over the world. So the security of this thing is gigantic to deal with. So a lot of nastiness could happen. Organized crime is not going to sit on its laws because it is already involved in cyber crimes in a big way, so they've got the money and the talent to take it the next step. It could also, it's a classic example that I think Walt Disney anticipated when he had the magic magician with the kid, as an apprentice to the magician, and he had this broom, and all of a sudden the broom gets out of control and floods everything. Well, that kind of thing, I think, would be inevitable in many different ways. Imagine if we didn't have the International Atomic Energy Agency. Imagine how many dirty bombs would have gone off in the world. They wouldn't have to worry about any enforcement or rules or regulations on nuclear power. I think we would have had many more Chernobyls as a result of that. Even the proponents that normally don't like regulation, like Elon Musk and others, have said, eh, we're going to have to regulate this. And I think Elon Musk used the example, imagine if we had New York City and no traffic lights and no regulations on cars. I mean, it would be a mess. So the science fiction stories, some of them, might be possible. Not exactly as they're written. But this is way too powerful to allow it to go out of control. Think of how many things are controlled by the Internet today. And then imagine them many more things interconnect with the Internet of Things, and then imagine software running them in completely different ways and different directions. I don't even want to think too much about it, but I'm going to have to later on. But right now, I'm not there yet. So the infrastructure that's controlled by these smart systems could go wrong because it could be hacked by adversaries. Right. If there is a global tension, if there's a dispute, as there is, right. one country could flex its muscles. Right. Like in the Second World War, Right. British bombers bombed dams to flood planes of water to slow down the German industry. Yep. So there could be manipulation by opposition, but there could also simply be bugs. And we know, those of us who've been involved in software, that all large software tends to have bugs that often gets flushed out in the wrong times. Right. So I'm with you that we need to keep an eye on this, but isn't it going to be hard? You talk about regulating cars. Well, we can see the cars. We can see when they go through traffic lights. Right. 
it's even possible to see when nuclear weapons are being tested. If you do them underground, there are seismic waves. Right. But how can you keep an eye on what people are doing in their garage, in their basement, even on their smartphones, developing new general intelligence? As you know, I'm doing a paper for AGI for the European Commission right now. Somewhere in the paragraphs I put in there that here are three things that have got to be done. Each one of them seem impossible, and together they seem really impossible. But we're going to have to try. We're just going to have to try. I mean, sometimes we end up with solutions that we didn't know about when we started. Something that seems impossible, like landing on the moon or flying <laughs> to begin with, eventually you figure out how to get around it. But I think we begin by addressing the problem directly, like saying, okay, what are the initial conditions that would give rise to a good general intelligence that we're in favor of versus what could evolve in a bad way? It's just the old story. If you have a tree and a seed and water and sunshine, it'll grow fine. But if you don't have those initial conditions right, it will not grow fine. So I think one of the first steps is to talk up around the world what should be the initial conditions. Let's argue and go through it and give it real heavy scrub down. And then when we do, it says, okay, can we make some agreements, international treaties, about that? and then have an auditing system, and then a licensing system. So if somebody does something that without a license, just like if you're driving a car without a license, you can be arrested. Now, this is trickier. Well, on the other hand, you can have AI going through the world's communication system, sniffing around for anybody doing something that's suspicious. I don't want to go into too much detail, but you get a flavor of a sequence of what we might be able to do. I don't think anybody other than a psychopath would think that AI and any other powerful technology should be completely free of regulation. There's always the danger of trying to regulate something which hasn't evolved yet, so you don't know what it is you're regulating. And the fact that AI is invisible isn't really a barrier. I mean, the financial services industry is invisible, and it's very, very heavily regulated, and it's a very contested domain. But the real problem with AGI, because, of course, it very quickly becomes superintelligence, is that it's quantitatively different in that we're trying to regulate something which is smarter than us. And that presents just a massive challenge. And there are very bright people trying to do it. What's now called the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, used to be the Singularity Institute, has been doing it for decades. There's other people in Oxford, Cambridge, Cambridge in the States, trying to figure out how you control or mold the initial conditions of a superintelligence. I've got to say those two projects seem to me impossible. I just don't know how you control something much more smart than you. This is like the old story. A million mile march starts with one foot. Solve one problem, get to the next. Incrementally keep going through. Otherwise, if I listen to you carefully, I would say, throw up my hands and say, well... No, no, no. This is not a council of despair. I'm not saying that we don't do anything. But I don't understand how controlling something much smarter than us is going to work when that thing is getting smarter and smarter. You start it before it gets there. A tree is mightier than I am, but I can control that seed. But it's not smarter than you. No, but it's mightier in the sense of strength. I was just making the analogy of strength and size and so forth. But it's the initial conditions. You start before it becomes general intelligence. That's the whole point. But once it becomes a superintelligence, then it outstrips you and your control, I would think, is lost. But that's the point of getting the initial conditions right, is if you have initial conditions right and an auditing system that can do it and a licensing system and an enforcement system, then as it grows, it's growing in a way that we've asked it to grow. As long as it doesn't decide to change the initial conditions that you set. I'm not saying we shouldn't do things. Clearly, we have to do things. 
it always strikes me that there's, broadly speaking, three options. We either hope that superintelligence likes us and understands us very well, or we try to control it, and neither of those seems really adequate. Or the third approach seems to me the Musk approach, which is that we merge with it. And so we develop really, really sophisticated brain computer interfaces and uploading. But the merger still requires initial conditions. I wrote a book about this 30 years ago called Future Mind. And I think I was one of the first ones to say, if you can't beat them, join them. And so I'm with you. But you still have initial conditions. True. The initial conditions issue is relevant whether we go in parallel or we go merger. Yeah, that's a fair point, because if we try to merge with it and it says, I don't want any part of you, then we're in some difficulty. Right. I think there's two things we can talk about controlling. We can talk about controlling the AI, which I think is, as Callum says, likely to be impossible. But we can also talk about controlling what the AI corporations are doing. And I think that's where we've got more hope, at least in the short term. We can set rules that will govern what these companies do. And at least for a while, the AI will be constrained by that. But the longer term hope that I would point to, and I think, Jerry, you're highlighting it when you talk about getting the initial conditions right. It's not so much about control as about alignment. Yeah, that's right. It's about setting some kind of values that's almost like a prime directive in Star Trek talk. Right. That is built deep into the core of a system, some sufficient respect for ongoing human flourishing. And if we could do that, it doesn't matter if we can no longer control it, that is the AI, because even when it's beyond our control, it will still have a sufficient care for us. Is that how you see it as well? Yeah. I would uh, up for starting anywhere. You're saying corporations. My paper hopefully will be starting with the European Union, because they're well known for working on regulations. <laughs> So they might be the first. I wouldn't leave out countries because, to me, there is a kind of an arms race with China and the United States, also others, but mostly China and the United States, a combination of quantum computing and artificial general intelligence, and the two can reinforce each other. So I want to have rules applied to governments as well. But my attitude is wherever we can get this thing going, let's begin. And my argument with the European Union is that although that doesn't take into account everybody in the world, once it gets in motion and some things are relevant and useful, then other countries can take them on. My attitude is if we don't have China and the United States involved in this thing, it goes off. For all I know, some of this AGI may already exist in the classified government of China and the United States. History, if anything, tells us that in general, the technology as a generalization is 10 or more years in the military ahead of what the public gets to see. Now, I grant you that a lot of the talent is outside of government on this area, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some very patriotic people in China and the United States that say, okay, I'm this great genius, and I'm still going to do it for my country, and I'm not going to get a fortune in deep mind or whatever. If we can get some rules going on with corporations soon, great. But I would start anywhere just to get it going. And what would these rules be? Is it essentially about slowing down development of AGI in order to try and understand it and make it safer? No, I think slowing down is hopeless. I know that Demis out of Deep Mind has talked about this, that we may hit a point we have to slow down. I don't see how you can do that. You're going to tell China to slow down? No, I agree. It's going to be hard or impossible. I agree. You're going to tell organized crime, slow down? I don't think so. I think the best we can do is to say, there's a variety of initial conditions. 
One, they have to be licensed through an auditing process. You can't just make an AGI and sell it. It's reasonable, like to drive a car, you've got to be licensed, etc., because you can kill somebody with a car and it's a dangerous device. So there's various procedures that you would have put in place ahead of time. You have to be able to do, in my judgment, continuous auditing, because since the AGI continually improves moment by moment by moment, a one-time audit for the initial conditions can be okay, but then it can go off the guardrails, as you are hinting before, the initial conditions might not be enough. It's better than nothing, but it might not be enough. So you want to have an auditing system attached to the AGI all the time. Just like your car, some people have a car that has a governing system saying you're past the speed limit, etc. But then we may have to have an automatic shutdown system, either internal to the software or external through Interpol or somebody else. These are the kinds of things that we have to discuss. What should be done and in place before AGI hits? I'm with you that each of the proposals will have issues and challenges. Correct. But we've got to start discussing them. Everything you've been suggesting, I'm sure listeners are thinking, hey, auditing, licensing, how is organized crime going to agree to be audited? How is uh, North Korea agreeing to not modify AI in ways? Okay. Now, I didn't bring this up in the paper. Maybe I should. Organized crime requires banks. Banks require software to receive and send money. What happens if we upgraded, use the uh, IMF, central bankers, and uh, ministers of finance in the same room, agree to upgrading the software, and then you make it not backwardly compatible so that every bank has got to play in the game. And we've already got the Palermo statute, or whatever it's called, on sharing information on organized crime then we'd run the software so that you can start to detect any of this activity real fast. Something similar to that might have to be done with AI. I like the idea. But I would like the idea of addressing it. And I said, right now, the conversation, whether it's, I won't name names, but some of the people you're talking about, don't talk about organized crime. They talk about governments, they talk about corporations, they don't talk about organized crime. And to me, that's as much of a threat as any other country. My main complaint about what some of these organizations do is they seem to think their problems can be solved by mathematics or by philosophy (laughs) or by hardware, whereas I think we can't ignore politics and economics. We're going to have to use a whole variety of mechanisms. But anything we try and do with banks, there will be shadow banks. If we try and control traditional currencies, there will be cryptocurrencies. Well, that's another issue. After all, what some of the North Korean exploits, when they tried to make money with their ransomware, for example, the WannaCry system that caused so much chaos in the UK's National Health Service a few years ago, it seems that that got out of control. It seems that the North Koreans weren't fully in control of the software they released, but the money that was received by them, it was going via some cryptocurrencies. So it's going to be hard work, but we must have that conversation. And if we give up, then, well, we've got no hope. A question maybe for one of your future guests is, you know, in the United States, we had a ransomware on the pipeline, East Coast, Colonial Pipeline. It was paid in cryptocurrency, but the U.S. government got most of it back. How did they do that? I'm not saying a kind of answer, but the point is that we may be able to counter the crypto and the blockchain better than we thought, especially if you got a little bit of quantum computer coming down the road. How are people responding to your proposals? 
you're talking to various organisations and some of them aren't sufficiently interested in the hard problems. But are governments, are people in in governments you're speaking to, are they paying more serious attention? I think they don't know what to do. Usually when you send some proposal off, an organisation says, well, we like it, we don't like it or whatever. I would say I sent to maybe 10 to 15 and maybe one or two made a response which tells me they don't know what the hell to do. I think that the conversation, even in the last year, has improved on this issue a lot. The response is much like what we're talking about here is, yeah, there's something, but is it impossible? How do we, what do we do? There's also politics in this thing. It's, oh my God, this is a hot ticket. I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm just getting in some emails right now from OECD. I am on their little advisory thing. Every time we talk about this, it slaps back to narrow intelligence. And I say, no, 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 we're not talking narrow, we're talking general. So they say, oh, yeah, right. And then examples start to go back to narrow. I'm optimistic that the conversation will get more intelligent. I'm feeling the log jam loosening up a little bit. I hope you're right. I take a slightly different view from both of you, I think. I'm skeptical about the ability to control superintelligence. I'm skeptical about the ability to set up its... Well, you can't control super. That's the whole point. You can't control super. Well, AGI is superintelligence after either a matter of minutes or days or weeks, so it's pretty quick. No, I make a distinction. To me, general intelligence, as we've been discussing, the difference to me on super is that the super sets its own goals independent of our awareness or our knowledge beyond our understanding and acts in ways we don't even can tell. That to me is a difference. So the only way we can make sure that that beyond our control is in a good way is those initial conditions of general. But don't you think that AGI turns into superintelligence within a pretty short time period? Yeah, that's why we want to start talking about initial conditions now. All right, but I'm also skeptical of the idea that whatever initial conditions you set up will endure because you then have a creature which interrogates its own initial conditions and decide which ones it wants and which ones it doesn't want. So I'm skeptical of that whole project, but I really commend and encourage people who want to try to solve those problems because maybe they will find a solution. I'm also skeptical of the possibility of regulating, seriously regulating AGI, because I think there are enough actors who, who will refuse to obey the regulation and find ways around it. But again, I completely commend people trying to do it. I think it's a worthwhile enterprise. But I see another threat, which I don't think is widely recognized. And the other threat is panic. I think the great majority of humanity is paying zero attention to all of this. It's seen the science fiction movies, and it thinks they're mildly entertaining, slightly scary, and completely irrelevant to their life. Science fiction, it's a long time in the future. One day, most of these people are going to wake up look at GPT-100 or GPT-20, whatever it is, and think, good grief, this thing is real. And you, small number of people, knew about this and you didn't tell us, or at least you didn't tell us loudly enough, we didn't pay attention. And I think at that point, there's going to be the mother of all panics. And when you throw panic into what's already a world full of culture wars, you get very, very destable societies. And that could be really catastrophic. That's the thing that worries me. So for me, even more important than getting the regulation right and figuring out AI alignment and safety is trying to get more people to pay attention to this stuff because that's the only way to forestall the panic, which I see as the biggest threat. I actually think, and this is probably going to be very popular with both of you, I actually think that AGI will work out the way it's going to work out. I don't think there's much we can do to change it. It's going to evolve the way it will evolve. 
What we can do... But that's what people believe about nuclear weapons. Back in the 60s, 70s... Well, they were wrong about that. They were wrong about that because nuclear weapons don't make up their own minds about things. They're not in control of themselves. But the larger question was, people talk about inevitability. It was inevitably thought that World War III was going to occur with nuclear weapons between Moscow and Washington. That was the majority of the world. But serious minds realized we had to manage this somehow, even though they're classified and competent and all that stuff. We figured out how to manage it so far. I think the people in China and even in organized crime that are actually doing the code, the real folks doing the work, I believe they understand this and they're nervous even more than I am. I think that they will also be part of the conversation to get their bosses to say, hey, look, we got to figure out how to manage the system somehow. It's an interesting thought. You think there are mafia organizations working on AGI? Do you think there's a mafia version of DeepMind? First of all, let's go to the quasi-data, because it's hard to have data on organized crime. But the estimates of people that look at this stuff is that organized crime makes two or three times the amount of money per year of all of the militaries combined. Now, granted, all the militaries are not one force, and just like organized crime is not one force either, but it gives you an idea of the scale of money they have to buy. And they also know how to set up dummy corporations and shells and so forth. So you think you're working for the good guys, but you're not. So their interest, because drugs are, looks like they're going to be legalized around the world eventually. So that's a lost income. So what does a business do when it loses one of its lines? Eh, it comes up with a new one. And they're already doing very well in trillions with cyber crimes now. So why would they just say, oh, we're not going to progress any further. I mean, they didn't do cyber crimes 20 years ago. 20 years from today, what, what are they going to do in cyberspace? I don't think organized crime will create an AGI from scratch, but what it may well do is it may take something that exists, yeah. which is slightly open source, partly open source. They may reverse engineer it and copy it and then right. tweak it so that it serves what they think of as their purpose. Yeah. But then just as the North Koreans lost control, it seems, of WannaCry, just as the Russians lost control of some of the cyber attacks they launched on Ukraine, which bounced back and damaged some of the well-being of some of the Russian corporations as well. These mafia people, despite being clever, and some of them are clever, they may have caused these problems. So we've got to have that discussion. Yeah, my attitude is I would like to get everybody on the table and all the ideas on the table. Let's get it all up there and now sort through it. So is that the main success conditions for your project, that more people will be educated, more people will be aware, more people will lose their reticence to consider this and they will get involved in the discussion? Oh, yeah. I'd be a happy camper if ITU and others took over this project and left me in a dustbin. I'd be delighted. What we want to do is to broaden and deepen the conversation. Well, I meant to that. And why aren't the ITU and others running with this? Well, one, I don't know. My guess is that those people at DeepMind and Google, there are senior people in the different systems that when I talk to them a bit, they like, well, that's way off in the future. You're premature. This is too early. Don't worry about it. And I'm going like, if I'm running a secret research mission, I want people not to know what I'm doing. That's the whole idea. So I'd like to keep all these people away from us. You know, eh, it's way off in the future. Don't worry about it. You know, stay away. Get away from us. I have a suggestion. 
tell them not to talk to Google. Talk to Sam Altman at OpenAI because he says AGI is coming in a decade, and that should wake them up. That's not exactly a consensus yet. I've been tracking this, as I mentioned, since FutureMind 30 years ago. It used to be like 100 years. Yeah, 50 years. Yeah, maybe 20 years. You know, more and more people are starting to say 10. And they said that 10 two years ago. So we're talking about eight years. So time is short, and time is short on this conversation as well. I think we should wrap up. If people listening are interested in what you've been saying, how can they find out more about the Millennium Project, and how can they participate in this particular project? Well, first they spell Millennium the British way, not the French way, (laughs) with two L's and two N's. So it's Millennium, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-U-M, hyphen, not underlined, but hyphen, project, Org. And you'll see all kinds of stuff in there. And under current activities, you'll see the AGI stuff. Thanks very much for raising awareness of this. It's not the end of the story. As you said, we're going to have a lot of awkward steps ahead, but we must take some of these initial awkward steps. And we look forward to bringing you back as your projects evolve further. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. <laughs>